you would turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 9, we are hoping to finish the book of Esther this morning, which means that we'll have a week, uh, an off week next week, uh, something different, and then uh, we'll start a new ser- sermon series on the Beatitudes uh, two weeks from now. Um, but unfortunately, I could not come up with a separate sermon just for three verses in chapter 10 that was mainly about taxes. So I put uh, the end of nine with 10, and I, I hope that uh, we will be able to glean something uh, useful from it this morning. Uh, so again, uh, starting in chapter 9, verse 16, we'll read through the end of that chapter through, uh, through chapter 10 as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. On the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plot that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease amongst their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, and words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons. As Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land, on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. 
Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to quiet our hearts and to listen uh, to the words of life, that we would listen to uh, the command from heaven. Pray that you would give us uh, confidence in your word, wisdom from above, uh, humility that allows us to receive that which has been given to us, that which has been revealed to us and to our children. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word, help us to receive it by faith and to uh, apply it and to enter into that rest that has been promised to us. We pray, Father, that we would see all these things culminating in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would give thanks accordingly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most Americans today are probably not too familiar with the calendar date, November the 5th. I mean, you, you know that there is a November the 5th, I, I grant you that. Uh, but what does it mean? What is its significance? Uh, when in America, in the early years, in the settlers of New England, they would celebrate that day, having brought with them a holiday, a tradition known as Guy Fawkes Day. Some of you are familiar with that. He was a member of a Catholic terrorist group, if you will, who was known for the gunpowder plot of 1605. Again, for those of you who don't like history, I'm sorry about that. But this took place in London, and it was, a, it was a, a plot to kill King James I of England and to replace him with the Catholic head of state instead. And Guy Fawkes, particularly, was one of these men who was actually caught guarding the large cache of dynamite, ready to blow up the house of the lords and ready to take the lives of all those in leadership. And because he was the one who was caught red-handed, if you will, uh, literally, he was sentenced to hang soon afterwards. So in commemoration of this very important turn of events, uh, King James establishes a holiday to give thanks to God that would be known through bell ringing throughout the land, bonfires and church services everywhere that everyone was required to go to. And even there was a liturgy that was added to the book of worship in the Anglican church for, with special prayers and special readings on that day. It was a, it was a grand holiday. But soon enough, that spiritual focus was forgotten, and uh, most of us probably know what it's become today in its secular holiday. Many, uh, many bonfires still take place, a lot of fireworks, a lot of drinking, if you will, but uh, over time, it, it turned from that spiritual focus of, of thanksgiving unto God for saving them into basically an anti-Catholic day where they were bashing the Pope and literally taking sticks and and beating the Pope, uh, images of the Pope, and, and burning effigies of Guy Fawkes and all the like. I shared with you last week that for many of the Jews uh, today, that's basically what the Feast of Purim has become. <laughs> uh, for many, it's still a, a, a day in which the Book of Esther is read in its entirety uh, in the synagogues throughout the world. But now it's just become sort of a raucous affair for a number of people. They, like I said, many of the people dress up in superhero costumes, and it just becomes a fun day. Instead of eating elephant ears, they now eat Haman's ears, and they say "boo" every time his name is mentioned. And like I said, it's a it's a fun time. Don't get me wrong, but I wouldn't say it's all that worshipful. Uh, certainly uh, not as focused upon the Lord. I think as originally it was intended to be, sort of like Guy Fawkes Day. Originally, the Feast of Purim was very worshipful, as holidays often are when they have their beginning. It was a commemoration of pure joy for the Jews. They gave thanks to God for delivering them from the wicked Haman, from all of his 
co-conspirators. In, in verses 17 and 19 of chapter 9, it says that after two days of fighting and defending their, their in, against their enemies, the Jews in the city naturally held the day of feasting and gladness on the 15th day of Adar. And uh, similarly, we see that the Jews in the rest of the empire uh, celebrated a day earlier because they only had one day of fighting instead of two. And they also naturally began to celebrate. It was just something that occurred within the heart of man. They wanted to give thanks unto God for saving them from such a horrible enemy and for turning the tables in such a glorious way. And so these initial celebrations were very positive. They weren't uh, burning effigies of of uh, Haman, and they weren't beating them with sticks and things of that nature. It was just giving thanks to God for such a glorious salvation um, and for, for turning the tables again. It was beautiful, natural reaction. Well, if it was so natural and spontaneous, then why... Why is it that Mordecai then now gives orders to actually celebrate this day? If you'll notice in verses 20 through 22, he sends out a letter to all the provinces commanding the Jews to keep these very same days that they were already keeping. Why would they do that? Why would, why would, why would Mordecai have to command this of, of the Jews? Well, <clears throat> let me ask you this. What's important about the day, June 24th? Anybody remember? No, completely slipped our mind. Do you realize that was the day of the grand reversal in the United States? Roe v. Wade was overturned. We've already forgotten, have we? We've already forgotten that this year, 2022, grand reversal. Something that had been in place for over 40-some years. Grand reversal. Do you think it's something that we ought to remember? Do you think it's something that we ought to give thanks for? Rejoice in? I can tell you this, the other side does. I, I, my daughter showed me something the other day. She was looking at uh, something online, and she had found some pendants, uh, jewelry, keepsake type things. And uh, I later looked it up myself. There are a number of t-shirt companies and jewelry companies that now sell pro-abortion prints, charms, necklaces, bracelets, t-shirts, all the above, stating 1973, which is the year of my birth. Now it's become the Roe v. Wade keepsake, if you will. And it says pro-row, all these types of things. And basically, don't forget. It's a, it's a, almost like a holiday to them. This year in which abortion was legal in our country in every state of America. Uh, they don't want future generations to forget the freedom that they had to do what they wanted to do. I mean, it's very similar to September 11th, right? We have those t-shirts. You see people walking around with the t-shirts. Never forget. Right, we have that 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 uh, tendency to forget, and that's why Mordecai doesn't want just the current generations to celebrate this grand reversal, but he wants the future generations to celebrate it as well. To never forget how God's providence had so marvelously marvelously unfolded, and how God had intervened in the life of men and had changed these circumstances to overthrow the most powerful men in the empire. And so by regulating that holiday, by codifying it, if you will, um, he sought to ensure that God's people would never forget. They would always remember this day in which God had helped them. They would never doubt God's help ever again. That, uh, certainly that would be the intention, I imagine. But, but even with regulated holidays, people over time forget. We forget why we even celebrate these things or the purpose behind them. I imagine anyone coming from another country, particularly if they come from a, a Muslim background or a Hindu background to America today, they'd be shocked to find out that St. Patrick wasn't a short, red-headed bartender dressed all in green. 
And that's what they would assume, right? I mean, that's what I would assume if that's all I saw. Instead of understanding, he was a very zealous missionary who brought Christianity to Ireland in the 5th century. No concept of that. Most Christians have no idea that's what took place. Or what about Valentine's Day? St. Valentine. Do you even call it St. Valentine's Day anymore? We don't. Again, it's not some chubby cherub with the arrow and bow. It's a Christian martyr who lived in the 3rd century. Someone that the church thought we ought to remember. But we have no idea who that guy is now. We have no idea what any of these people mean or what they signify or why we commemorate them. Now it's just big parties and drinking and parades in red or green, depending upon the season. What about Halloween? Yes, Halloween's a church holiday too. All Hallows' Eve is what it's originally called. It was the, the night before All Saints' Day. No one calls it that anymore, but that's what Hallow means. Saints. All Saints' Day. It's a day to to celebrate Christ's victory over the powers of darkness and that in our union with Him, we can celebrate that victory and rest in it. That's what it meant. We've lost all sight of it, have no idea. Contrary to what secular historians constantly try to make you believe, it has nothing to do with Celtic Druid rites or any other pagan holiday. It was a Christian holiday. It was established from from the beginning. But over time people began to have more fun with it. And that's when they began to dress up in costumes as the devil, not to celebrate the devil, but to mock him, to make fun of him, you see. And then children would dress up in costumes as well, and they would give gifts to one another, very similar to the Feast of Purim, giving gifts to each other, giving gifts to the poor in that sense. But then over time, as you can imagine, people began to think it's more of a celebration of the devil than it is of Christ's victory over the devil. It's very similar, in fact, to gargoyles. When you see them on uh, uh, buildings today, we we mainly think of them as a a pagan, awful, demonic thing. Uh, The ones that were on the medieval churches, and they were on many churches, many cathedrals, the purpose of them was actually to have a picture of a saint sticking out his tongue as if he was sticking out his tongue at the devil. But we forget all that. We don't know our history, which is why I love history so much because we don't know it very much. And so we begin to think that something that originally was Christian is now demonic and now we're scared of it. But that's what happens over time with traditions when we change the original purpose for why these holidays were celebrated. And I think that's what happens oftentimes. We all have a tendency to lose sight of of what they mean anymore. And so they're establishing, he wants to regulate this holiday so that they would remember what God had done. Remember this special reversal of events. And so, uh, verse 22 of chapter 9, Mordecai tells the Jews why they should celebrate this day as holy. He says, For these were the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. Now, I have a big pet peeve with many different translations. I like the ESV quite a bit. I think it's a good translation, but here I think they fail us. And the reason why is because they're translating the same Hebrew word that's used three or four times in this context, but they'll translate it differently within a a sentence or two of each other. It doesn't make any sense. You lose sight of what they're trying to say. Literally, it says in in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 9, that the Jews rested on these particular days in order that they might celebrate this holiday. Right, But then the same word used in verse 22, if you look there, 
But in the English, it doesn't use the word rest. Instead, it says the Jews got relief from all their enemies. But literally and consistently, it should read, and the Jews had rest from all of their enemies. And therefore, they celebrate what? A day of rest. That's the intention of the holiday, that they would rest in the fact that God had won the victory for them. He had overturned the tables. A divine reversal, giving them rest from all of their enemies. Do you remember when we were in the book of Judges? There's a pattern throughout the book of Judges that every time a judge was raised up by God and he would defeat their uh, whatever threat that was facing him at that time from whatever area of uh, the surrounding nations, it would then say, how many years of rest they had as long as he was living. Do you remember that? And it said they would have rest for 40 years, or they would have rest for 60 years, or whatever it was. As long as he lived, they had rest. In fact, the two highest points in Old Testament history, if you look at sort of the pinnacles of, of what's happening here in the, in the story of the Old Testament, the two highest points we have are in Joshua, and then later in 1 Kings. And, and the first one takes place because in Joshua, for the first time, God's people have rest from all their enemies. And it's a, it's a wonderful time, almost paradisical time. Rest from all their, they're in the promised land and they have complete rest from all their enemies for a long time. And then the second highest point would be the time when King Solomon comes to the throne. And not only do they have rest, but they have a king sitting on the throne and they have rest all around. Rest from all their enemies. In fact, they are domineering every nation around them. Everyone's coming and giving tribute to Israel. They're giving him gold and silver and all sorts of other things. It's a, a great time of rest. And so when the, the text here in the Hebrew is referencing this concept of rest, it's, it's alluding back to these times and saying, because now Mordecai is second in command in the kingdom, there is a rest that Israel has for the first time, even in a foreign land. There's rest for the people of God. And so they're to have a day of rest, to commemorate the rest that God had given them, even though God had brought them to this foreign place and had brought the enemies against them in the first place to lead them to Babylon. Now he's giving them rest and giving them hope and joy and gladness. And, and so they're to celebrate this as a holiday. But again, even that word doesn't mean much to us anymore. We think of the word holiday as if it's a synonym for vacation. In fact, in, in Great Britain, they use the word holiday. Are you going on holiday? Yes, I'm going on holiday. Which basically means I'm leaving my house and going somewhere else. But the word holiday means what? Holy day. A day set apart from every other day in order that I might rest and glory in the fact that God is the one who gives me that rest whether I'm resting in the fact that God had rested on the seventh day in terms of creation, or whether I'm resting in a greater salvation that He would bring later on. The purpose of this holiday is that God's people might rest knowing that He had given them peace in the midst of all their enemies. It caused them to lie down in green pastures and to drink from still waters, to eat from that table of plenty even in the presence of their enemies. God had given them rest. Strangely enough, there's a second letter written, verse 29, by Queen Esther to confirm this day, again, as an edict in which all God's people were commanded to, to celebrate this as a holiday. It's a, 
Strangely, it's a state holiday, not a church holiday, if you will. So it was ordered by the state, by Mordecai and his role as a, as a second in command, and then also Esther and her role as the queen of Persia. And so it, it's, it's coming from the highest of high, so that, in order, so that they can have a day off from work, in fact, two days off from work, so that they can rest. The state is mandating that the Jews rest to celebrate their rest. What a blessing that is when even a pagan nation recognizes the fact that we ought to be able to rest. It's not always that case. You imagine the Jews when they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, and Moses asked that they might go into the wilderness, that they might make sacrifices unto their God, but the Pharaoh refused them even one day of rest from their labor, enslaving them in so many ways. And yet here, they have the blessing of rest even under a foreign power. But secondly, notice it also, it it was mandated for believers, for the Jews, not for the unbelievers. Uh, They didn't have to attend. They didn't have to go to synagogue on that day. They didn't have anything to give thanks for. And so we see that even in our country today, the United States, we don't force anyone to recognize our particular holidays. I'm kind of glad that Chinese people, for the most part, don't celebrate Christmas because then I can eat Chinese buffet on Christmas Eve if I want to. I normally don't go out to eat on Sunday, but if Christmas falls on another day, yay, I'm all about it. I'm going to get me some Chinese. So I'm very thankful they don't celebrate Christmas. I know that sounds pretty selfish. It's true. But we shouldn't be commanding anyone to celebrate our holidays, and neither should any other faith or group of people command us to celebrate theirs. Again, which is why I keep reiterating the same thing. I should not have to celebrate Pride Week. I should not have to celebrate Ramadan or, or Diwali or anything else because that's the, the essence of tyranny when you're forced to celebrate something against your will, against your conscience. Christians should never do that to anyone else and no one should ever do it to them. That's where you lose freedom. That's the beginning of persecution. We're already seeing that in our own country. But in this case, the command was only given to the Jews that they might take off days to celebrate, to feast, to worship, to give thanks. A whole day off from work that they can just focus on what the Lord had done for them. Could you imagine if we had such a day? Honestly, it would be a a great place to end this story, end of chapter 9, victory of God's people over all their enemies. God's turning their mourning into gladness. International holiday being established. A great place to end. We should just, we just finish right now. We should just pray and just close for the day. It would be great. But instead, there are those three pesky verses in chapter 10 that we still have to deal with. The chapter begins in a very odd manner, telling us that King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, depending upon your translation, imposed more tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Presumably because he chose to bail out all the college students in the empire who failed to pay off all their student loans. I'm sorry, I'm confusing an American president with the Persian emperor. You see, in a democracy, presidents seek to keep their power by giving generous gifts to voters that's not their own money. The emperor, likewise raises taxes because he assumes all the money is his. You can see how we get those two things confused. But literally, again, another major problem in a country, in addition to freedom, is when you're constantly giving money away and nobody knows where that money goes. 
indebting nations. It's a very, very dangerous thing. In fact, I, I'm more concerned about that than just about anything else that's taking place this year. And it keeps happening. Benjamin Franklin said this long ago, our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But, he said, in this world, nothing is certain except what? Death and taxes. I don't know why Esther has to end with taxes. <laughs> but it's there for a reason. Uh, we're told that the emperor raises new taxes. So we can relate to this. We know what that's like. Uh, we're reminded in verse 2 then about his great power and his might and how we can read all about more about his sociopathic rule in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Media and Persia. What does it have to do with anything? Well, it's what follows that is sort of a contrast, if you will. In verse 3, we see Mordecai is advanced to the second in command of the kingdom. That He's a great, he's a popular leader. He, 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 he pursues the welfare of the people. And, and, and again, in contradistinction to Haman, who's constantly trying to kill God's people, he, he pursues their welfare. And it's a great, great thing. But this last verse is, is meant to be in contrast to the first. Because as great as news as this is, it falls short of all our hopes and expectations. Because even though Mordecai is second in command, who's still sitting in first place? The sociopath. The one who caused all of this chaos and confusion and harm in the first place. He's still sitting on the throne. And even though Mordecai is similar to Joseph in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon... We saw that eventually uh, came another Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And in Babylon, we see that uh, eventually another emperor came to the throne as well and were not treated the same way. And so we're left with this uneasy feeling. Yes, we're celebrating, but yes, at the same time, we're wondering, what's next? Do you get that feeling in our own country? <laughs> what's next? How are we going to deal with what happens next? And you have to remember... Uh, Two, this is not paradise for the Jews. The Jews are not in the promised land. They're in a foreign land. They're under a wicked ruler. Yet they have someone in second command who is giving them welfare and, and is concerned for, for them and is seeking to love them, if you will. But we're still left wondering. If you ever read the book of Judges and you get to the end of it, you're kind of depressed and you ought to be. If you read the books of First and Second Kings and you get to the end of it, you're kind of depressed and you, and you ought to be. Because at the end of both of those books, in fact, the end of the Old Testament, you're constantly left wondering, who and where is this person that was promised that was supposed to come and to redeem us from all of this mess? And you don't find that answer, even though Mordecai is a type of Christ, certainly pointing us to the one who would to come. He is not Christ. He's still second in command. He's not the king. He doesn't have the power to accomplish anything that needs to be accomplished. He certainly has not brought his people back into the land of promise, to the land of rest. Where is this king that had been promised so wonderfully? Like in Psalm 72, it says that this man will come and he will judge the peoples with justice. He'll bring prosperity to the righteous rather than taxing them to death. He'll deliver the innocent from the oppressor, usher in a perfect peace throughout all generations, having dominion from sea to sea, from the ends of the earth, receiving gifts of gold and tribute from every king and every nation. Even though Solomon gets a foretaste of that, we're still looking for someone better, someone greater, than that. And it's not until the New Testament that finally we see men from the East, Magi, perhaps even from Persia, from this same land, coming and saying, where is he who is to be born King of the Jews? Where is he? Looking for him. 
And finally, we see Jesus coming on the scene, speaking good news to the poor, restoring sight to the blind, setting at liberty all those who are held captive, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, proclaiming the year of Jubilee, in which everyone is released from all their debts, and they're freed, and they have rest on every side. Notice that when Jesus comes, he doesn't overthrow King Herod. He doesn't overthrow the Roman Empire. Instead, he suffers and dies on the cross three days later to be raised again to new life. Then afterwards, a gospel is preached throughout the world. For what purpose? Paul tells us this, Colossians 2, verse 15. That at that hour, the darkest hour of the cross, a great reversal takes place. Jesus disarms the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in his body. So the very moment that Satan thought that he had crushed the Messiah, God overturns the decrees of men, overturns the, the schemes of the devil and brings life out of death. And that's what we celebrate every single Sunday here in God's church. And we've been doing it for 2,000 years. And it's not going to stop. Every Sunday, we are celebrating the fact that we have rest because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. He has defeated our greatest enemies. He has defeated the devil. He has defeated sin and death and hell for all eternity and has given us rest for the first time, you can rest with confidence knowing that God will never leave you, never forsake you, never withdraw His love from you. And even in the midst of all the chaos that we see and how our country changes day by day and who knows who the next leader will be, we're called to celebrate a holiday every single Sunday to remember Why? Because we so quickly forget. We so quickly forget that when Jesus says, it is finished, that means I can rest. I don't have to earn God's favor. I don't have to work myself out in some way to prove to God that I'm worthy of Him. I'm not, but Christ has given me His worth. Christ has given me His righteousness. Christ has given me His victory over the devil, over sin and hell, and it's mine, and I can rest. And be confident in that and assured of that, that God loves me and He's going to continue to love me because He has covenanted with me through Christ His Son. And so, truly, it's a day of refreshment. It's a day of joy. It's a day of rest. Why would I miss this day? How could I think that anything else is better than this day? It can't be. This is a great, great day. There's a, a special feast that's even given to us to celebrate the Lord's Supper in which we feed upon the body and blood of our Lord as we're reminded, say, never forget, remember what Christ has done for us. All of our debts have been paid. Our enemies have been shamed and dethroned because Christ has finished it all. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, what? Let us keep the feast. Let us celebrate the festival. Let us not forget. Never forget. It's interesting. Uh, my daughter Grace went to college a week and a half ago. 
And uh, she had her first Sunday uh, at Grove City in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's interesting, I had already picked out the church she was going to go to. And, and uh, she willingly submitted to it. <laughs> um, but she knew she was going to church no matter what. It, there was no, you know, no other option there. Who goes to a Christian college and then doesn't go to church? Apparently 80% or more of average Christian college students. My daughter had two, two new acquaintances that wanted to meet with her for coffee on Sunday, right around the time church was starting. And she said, um, I'm going to church. What are you doing? Why would you miss it? God has given us a whole day off of our work to celebrate that Christ has done the work for us, that we can rest. Why would we miss that? I'd venture to say that the sporadic attendance of many professing Christians today, I think is honestly what gives the impression to our surrounding culture that the good news is really not all that good after all, because most of us don't even go to church. We don't. And with COVID, it's even worse. We'll find any reason to skip church now. It used to just be sports and entertainment, but I can tell you, almost in every situation when families continue not to be in church, their children get the impression this really isn't that big of a deal. And so I'm not going to continue to do this. As soon as I go to college, we're done. <laughs> I'm absolutely done with this. I wasted my time for the first 18 years of my life. I'm telling you, that's the norm. Why is that? Because we don't relish the day. We don't rejoice. It's not a day of joy and gladness for so many people. And the reason why I think that is because many people have never really rested in Christ. If you know what it is to rest in Christ in your salvation, you'll love the Sabbath day. You'll love the Lord's day. Because it's now a day in which you're completely focused entirely on what Christ has done, what He has accomplished, what, he, what I don't have to do, but what Christ has done for me. Why would I miss that? I tell you, anyone who, who doesn't know what that means, doesn't know what that is, They've never really rested in Christ. Christ has done it all. When he said it is finished, I was sharing with the, the congregation on Sunday night. Uh, it's uh, another big Greek word, to telestai. I've shared it with you before here, I'm sure. It literally means it has been paid in full. Every single debt, every single sin that you've ever committed, in one fail swoop, he says, it's done. It's finished. It's paid for. You can rest. Rest. I've done it all. A Christian gets that. Those who are still seeking, still wondering, they don't get that. I ask you this morning, if you don't get it, come talk to me. Come talk to another Christian in the church. Ask them, what does it mean to rest in Christ? Because I don't get it. When you get it, you never have to justify your sin ever again. You never have to cover it over ever again. You never have to hide and to be afraid ever again. You can have that confidence and that sweet fellowship of the Lord, knowing that Christ has done it all for you, and you can rest. What a wonderful feeling it is. I pray that you'll know that feeling. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us that we might not be like those disobedient Jews who failed to enter into their rest. They would not trust you. 
They would not follow you. They would not cling to you. They wanted to go their own way and they went in fear. Lord, help us not to go in that way, but rather to trust the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, to know that there is a King who has brought us a forever place of rest. And then even as we go through the the tumult of of our times, Lord, help us to know the foretaste of that, that promised land, that promised rest even now as we look to Christ by faith. May we rest in Him. We pray in Jesus' name.